Welcome to Raven Debriefs. I'm your host, Jamie Lee Gonzalez. Throughout April, Gikatla Nation will be in court pushing back against British Columbia's outdated and unjust mining claims regime. The case has garnered national attention as it's one of the first to put legislation based on implementing UNDRIP to the test. As part of our work raising legal defense funds for Indigenous nations, Raven gets to work with nations like Gikatla who are applying their own legal frameworks at the same time as expertly navigating colonial courts. On today's podcast, you're going to hear about how those intersecting strategies come to life uh, from the powerhouse legal team of Ng Eris Fong. You'll hear from Indigenous rights lawyers Lisa Fong, Rachel Eris, and Ruben Tillman in a discussion about Gikatla's constitutional challenge, which is going to be heard at the BC Supreme Court on April 3rd, 2023. This is the first of three guest podcast episodes from the Eris Fong team, and it's a juicy one. So strap in, tune up, and get ready to learn the ins and outs of what it looks like to stand up to big mining in BC. Hi listeners, I'm Lisa Fong. I'm Rachel Aris. And I'm Ruben Tillman. We are lawyers at Ng Aris Fong Lawyers working on the upcoming Gitgatla Nation case challenging the constitutionality of the Mineral Tenure Act. In the case, Gitgatla says that there is a duty to consult them before the government can sell the right to explore for and take minerals away from their traditional territory. We are honoured to be able to bring this case to the court on behalf of Gitgatla. We will be arguing this case in the BC Supreme Court starting on April 3rd for two weeks. There are multiple parties, including the Attorney General of British Columbia and mining companies who say there is no duty to consult Indigenous governments. And there will also be seven intervener groups with various views. We decided to do this podcast because we've been receiving a lot of questions from our colleagues and the public about what's at stake in this case. To start us off, let us introduce the case to you. And then we can address the great questions we've received, which include, is this case really about whether the Crown must consult with Indigenous governments before selling the right to explore foreign tape minerals off their traditional territory? Or is it really about whether Canadian law recognizes that there can be negative impacts to Indigenous governance? Can BC's Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act make appreciable changes in the law? Or as recently asked by a Supreme Court Justice, is it just vacuous political bromide? In other words, just a nice sounding bunch of statements. Mineral companies and the government have said that mining brings in a significant amount of money to BC's coffers, and if consultations required, the financial sky might fall out of the industry. Can mining be both respectful to Indigenous peoples and continue to be profitable? Let's get started with a quick introduction to the case. Ruben, can you help us out on this? Yeah, sure, Lisa. Uh, all right, so this case is a long time coming. It's a challenge to what's called the free entry system for mineral rights. Essentially, for a small fee, anyone can get mineral rights on unceded First Nations territory without consent or even notice to the nation. And our client is Katatha Nation, and they're challenging recently staked mineral claims on Banks Island. That's on the north coast of BC in Gitatla territory, and it's an important source of food for Gitatla. There are spiritual sites and archaeological sites, and these claims were staked there without Gitatla knowing. And like you said, Lisa, there's a hearing coming up really soon, starting April 3rd, and Gitatla is joined by another nation, a Hadassat. And because this is such an important issue, 
for other First Nations, as well as environmental groups, mining groups, and BC's Human Rights Commissioner are all intervening. That means they'll be there to assist the court with their own unique perspectives on the issues. So what are the issues? Well, to start, BC's mining laws are old and outdated. They come from the gold rush era, and the basic premise is that BC is open for staking. This is the free entry system. Miners may roam the land looking for minerals. Uh, the Goldfields Act of 1859 refers to the wastelands of the crown. But of course, the problem is these aren't wastelands, and it doesn't make sense that they belong to the crown. The overwhelming majority of BC is unceded First Nations territory, including that of our client, Kitahatla. But since the 19th century, our mining laws prioritize mining as the highest and best use of the land. So coming to today, uh, there are two major pieces of legislation that govern mining in BC. There's the Mines Act and the Mineral Tenure Act. Our case is focused on the Mineral Tenure Act, or the MTA. Now under the MTA, there's something called the MTO. That's Mineral Titles Online. So what you do is, you go to MTO, and you can see a map of BC. And you can zoom in and move around the map. And all you need to do is select an area on the map, and for $1.75 per hectare, $1.75, you get the rights to whatever minerals are there. And you can go there and start exploring for minerals. You can actually go on the land, dig holes, and take minerals immediately. And this all happens even if there are others who might not want you to stake a claim for legitimate reasons. So for example, if a local government has a land use plan that says uh, this land isn't appropriate for mining, you can still stake a claim. You can also stake a claim on private land. You don't need the consent of the owner. Uh, but most importantly for our purposes, uh, there's no notice to any affected First Nations. All around BC, there's an average of about 5,000 new mineral claims staked every year, and there are tens of thousands of claims on the unceded territory of nations throughout the province. So the province gives mineral rights to miners for a very small fee, and those miners then have rights that override the rights of First Nations to govern their traditional territories. Uh, you might stake a claim on a harvesting area or a sacred spiritual site, it doesn't matter. And the final thing I'll say is, once you have a claim, you have a right under the MTA to get a lease. That's a long-term interest in the land. It can be up to 30 years. And again, you don't need First Nations consent. Ruben, thank you. Now, just before we get to our questions, a little bit more background for our listeners on the law. Rachel, can you just explain to us very basically, what's the duty to consult? Well, the duty to consult, Lisa, is the key issue in this case. So the duty says that before taking any action that might adversely impact Aboriginal rights, the Crown is required to consult with Indigenous peoples and accommodate their rights before going ahead. This consultation is very important because it is meant to ensure that the Crown understands the impact on rights from the Indigenous perspective, that is, the perspective of the rights holder. And then if the Crown learns something about that impact, it can change its plans in order to respect Indigenous rights. So this means that if the consultation shows that the impact to Indigenous rights cannot be reduced to an acceptable level, then the Crown might have to abandon its plan. In this case, the Attorney General of BC appears to be arguing that the impact of granting mining claims on Gitgatla territories is really non-existent and so there is no duty to consult. Besides that, they also appear to be arguing that consultation would have to be done on a claim-by-claim -claim basis, and it would take too much time and effort. The duty to consult is 
meant to allow the Crown to understand the impact of its action on constitutional rights so that the Crown can then uphold those rights. So even if it takes time and effort, it still has to be done. So Rachel, then what is the impact on Gitgatla when a mineral claim is staked in their traditional territory? So as a self-determining people who have never ceded their territory, Gitgatla Nation has inherent self-governance rights based in their connections to the land since time immemorial. Smoigat Nis Haiwas, a hereditary chief, gives powerful evidence of Gitgatla governance, law, and their legal relationships with and responsibilities to the land. So mineral claims, because they introduce third parties and give them certain rights on the land, disrupt those connections between land and self-governance. They disrupt the exercise of Gitgatla law. Also, the activity that is allowed under mineral claims, as well as undermining leases, which allow even more intense exploration, this activity might affect what Indigenous people decide to do with their lands once their title claims are finally recognized. So we are arguing that the impact on governance of granting mineral claims is serious, that this activity impacts Gitatla traditional laws and governance systems, and that it grants rights to miners on the land and then imposes mineral exploration activity and any future gain from that activity takes precedence over current Gitatla governance, use of and exercise of responsibility to their territories. So this goes back to the purpose of the duty to consult, which is to ensure that the Crown proceeds honorably in making any decisions that might impact Indigenous rights. We will argue that the government is breaching the duty to consult by failing to require consultation before the granting of mineral claims because of their adverse impacts on Gethala's self-governance rights. Thanks, Rachel. Um, so we've received quite a few questions about BC's Declaration Act and whether its requirement that the government must take all measures necessary to ensure the laws of British Columbia are consistent with the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples uh, can make any appreciable changes in the law. I'll weigh in on that one. Um, one of the arguments we will be making is that BC's Declaration Act means that the Mineral Tenure Act must be interpreted consistently with UNDRIP. That's what it says. This is bolstered by the fact that BC also amended its Interpretation Act, which requires that BC's legislation be interpreted consistently with UNDRIP. That's also what that act says. UNDRIP contains 46 articles setting out the baseline rights of Indigenous peoples. Canada, along with many countries all around the world, has committed to implementing UNDRIP into its laws. The UNDRIP articles include rights to free and prior consent, rights to self-government and self-determination, rights to language and cultural property, and legal respect for traditional ownership of lands. So the question becomes whether the Mineral Tenure Act is inconsistent with UNDRIP since it currently fails to provide for consultation with Indigenous peoples before selling rights to explore for and access minerals on their traditional territories. We'll be arguing that to interpret the Mineral Tenure Act consistently with UNDRIP, the system must include consultation before any sale. And we'll also be arguing that if the statute can't be interpreted in a manner that is consistent with UNDRIP rights, then the court should direct the province to immediately work in cooperation with Indigenous peoples, including Gitgatla, to make the law consistent with UNDRIP rights. 
There's been a lot of concern since BC's DRIPA became law and the Interpretation Act was amended. The concern is around whether these changes can actually make a difference in reconciliation with Indigenous peoples. Justice Kent, in a case called Rio Tinto Saikus, asked the critical question. He asked whether DRIPA is a sign of substantive change or just vacuous political bromide. In this case, which we will be arguing, we hope to see whether UNDRIP does make a difference or whether BC's Declaration Act is just a bunch of nice words but an empty promise. We hope it isn't. Okay, so let's come back to mining because there are some really interesting hot issues. Um, so Ruben, I'm gonna ask you this question. Can mining be respectful for Indigenous peoples and profitable? Now, the Attorney General of BC is arguing that requiring consultation with Indigenous governments could bring the industry to a halt. But can mining be respectful to Indigenous peoples and be profitable? Um, sure, thanks, Lisa. Um, I mean, I think the answer is yes. Uh, I mean, to start with, uh, going back to free entry, the free entry mining system, it's been the norm in BC for a long time. Um, and it has limited the vision of many governments and much of industry. It's gold rush era thinking, but there are viable alternatives. It doesn't have to be a zero sum game. You know, First Nations or industry have to choose only one. Um, so, okay, we could keep the current system modified to require First Nations consent for mineral claims, but our mining laws still prioritize mining above basically all other interests. So there are other possibilities if we want to get out of 19th century thinking. Uh, so for example, instead of free entry, we could start from the premise that land is closed to claims and only allow entry on certain blocks of land after consultation with and consent from traditional Indigenous owners. Uh, this could be a more rationalized system allowing government to plan for how areas of land will be used in the long term. We could also look to other countries. Uh, for example, in Australia's Northern Territory, they have the Land Rights Act. And basically, this act requires consent of Aboriginal peoples before mineral exploration can occur. And under this act, they have the right to refuse. So you can change the system, but it's crucial for industry to change its thinking too. And the good news is the industry is changing with many companies accepting high standards for mining that respect Indigenous self-governance rights as required by UNDRIP. For example, there's IRMA, that's the Initiative for Responsible Mining Assurance. And what IRMA does is it develops standards for mining, which include respect for human rights, free prior and informed consent, or FPIC, which is an UNDRIP right, um, and environmental and labor protections. They're audited by independent auditors. And, and these are standards that reflect the true cost of mining rather than an idea that there is something you can get out of the ground for free. Um, and they're also developing a mineral exploration standard right now. And big companies like Tiffany's, General Motors, Tesla, Microsoft, and many others, they've all committed to promoting responsible mining standards as IRMA members. So there's growing recognition that you can and should have more than one good thing at once. Respect for indigenous rights, for the environment, and a thriving mining industry. Ruben, that's fascinating. And this topic of the responsible and profitable miner is hotly contested in this case. There are several interveners who are going to be providing their view to the court on this issue. Um, one is First Tellarium and Kingston Geoscience. They are two mining exploration companies who say that consultation and obtaining consent from Indigenous governments is a must. And it really is the way that offers the best stability for developing mining projects. A coalition of environmental groups who are also intervening agree with 
um, Kingston Geoscience and Tellarium, while a coalition of prospecting and mining company associations who are intervening, they hotly disagree. We're hoping to rope in some of those voices in our next podcast. So thank you so much for listening to this podcast, and we hope you're going to continue to follow the case. Maybe we'll see you in the courtroom. The hearing is open to the public and there's going to be lots of room for everybody. There will be further updates on the case on Raven Trust's website. That's raventrustoneword.com. So feel free to check in there as well as on our own website. So Rachel Rubin, thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks Lisa. Lisa. And to our listeners, see you next time. heard Lisa Fong, Rachel Ayres, and Ruben Tillman on this episode of Raven Debriefs. Tune in next week for a deep dive conversation with a few of the interveners in Gikatla's case, Mining Watch Canada and Gitanyao Hereditary Chiefs. As always, you can support this podcast by subscribing, reviewing, and sharing, and you can support Gikatla and their fellow interveners through Raven at raventrust.com slash Gikatla. That's spelled G-I-T-X-A-A-L-A. I'm Jamie Lee Gonzalez, and thanks for listening.